Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to this afternoon's research seminar of the Aquinas Institute here at Blackfriars in Oxford, continuing our exploration of De Magistro Aquinas on the education of the whole person. And I'm pleased to welcome this week's speaker, Dr. Adam Eitel, who is Assistant Professor of Theological Ethics at Yale Divinity School. Dr. Eitel took his PhD in uh, theology at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, in 2015, and he's edited uh, and written a range of interesting and stimulating articles, including work on Aquinas and an edited volume of the works of uh, Robert Jensen. Dr. Eitel's currently working on a volume examining the formation of the preacher in Aquinas's biblical commentaries. And so we're delighted to welcome him today for a paper on the formation of the, the preacher in, Isaiah, in Aquinas's commentaries on Isaiah and Jeremiah. Dr. Eitel, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I have an updated handout that I can drop in the chat if I can, if that's possible. Do you know if that's possible? Yes, if you put it in, I'll make sure it goes to all of the attendees. All right, here. so here comes the, well, it's just not dropping into the chat for some reason. Okay, uh, could you email it to me? Yep, I'll do that right now. That's easy enough. One moment. All right, from New Haven to Oxford, there you go. So thanks everyone. I look forward to chatting with you after my presentation. Today, I wanna to talk to you about one aspect of a project that I've been working on for what seems like a million years. I guess it's been three or four now, I'm just wrapping it up. It's a book entitled Thomas Aquinas and the Making of Preachers. Today, what I want to talk about is Thomas's inheritance. Uh, it's, a, it's an idea that he receives from a group of Dominican predecessors, and that idea is in turn forged out of some predecessor conceptions of a preacher. I want to do this in order to set up a discussion of Aquinas's earliest conception of a preacher, and I'm going to be drawing specific attention to his commentaries on Jeremiah and Isaiah. Okay, so let's start with, I have a little PowerPoint I've set up, here we go. All right. So the first thing we have to do in order to understand what Thomas Aquinas means by the preacher or a preacher is we have to understand first how novel of a conception the notion of a preacher was in Thomas's day. It's important, however, not to exaggerate the novelty of the preacher as Thomas and his Dominicans, fellow Dominicans understood it. There were, of course, even prior to the order of preachers, wandering hermits, monks, canons regular, and various lay groups which had been provided temporary commission to preach. 
We see this, for example, in the case of the Waldensians and the Humiliati and the poor Catholics in the case of lay groups. These groups embodied a growing interest throughout Europe in popular evangelization, which had begun with the Gregorian reform. And in the case of the Waldenses and the Humiliati, they'd actually been commissioned by bishops uh, to preach. However, there's a large difference here between the, the lay preachers figured in, in these groups and the preacher that would be conceived by later Dominicans. These, these early groups are commissioned to preach, but their commissions are restricted to very particular kinds of preaching. They are re required to only preach moral exhortation. They're allowed to preach penance, but they're strictly forbidden from teaching doctrine. So too, in previous generations, there had been monks, for example, who had been commissioned to preach. So in the case of, of a group of Cistercians, at the request of Innocent III, they'd begun to preach against heresy in certain parts of Western Europe. And of course, there are heretical groups such as the Cathars who, from whom actually Dominic took the original idea to begin preaching in poverty. So there are these predecessor preachers that are, that are working in some capacity prior to the advent of the order of preachers. But there's nevertheless a large difference. In every case, the, to the extent that the, these preachers are, are allowed to preach or officially recognized as preachers, their preaching is restricted. It's, so it's, it, it cannot be doctrinal. On the, other, on the other hand, in every case, their preaching is considered a, a temporary provision. And this is true in the case even of Canons Regular, where in, say in Spain, where Dominic cut his teeth as a Canon Regular. Here you, we, we, we know that during Dominic's lifetime, the Ordo Canonicorum took on an increasingly pastoral orientation and that the Canons had begun to preach as part of their pastoral function. But even here, preaching is never regarded as an essential function of a Canon Regular much less of a monk. These are sort of supplementary tasks that are taken on in light of some concrete circumstance, some concrete need. And this helps, to under, helps us to understand what is so genuinely new and different about the preachers that Dominic would seek to cultivate in the order of preachers. Uh, first of all, before I go on to mention that, I should I should also just note that there are <clears throat> one second here. Oh, I think my slides are all right. Yeah, so we also have in the case of the 12th century schoolmen a some concerted effort to begin thinking through what it would mean to be a preacher. So, for example, Andrew Jones has recently noted in a in an interesting article that Innocent the Third insists that the clerical life, I'm quoting, should anoint the body of Jesus, that is the church, supporting her equally with word and example so that it may imitate him 
began to do and to teach, the man who has acted and taught, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, <clears throat> we can see here, Jones is pointing to a, a conception of a cleric who functions as a preacher. This is a, this is a quotation from Pope Innocent III, who was himself taught by Peter the Chanter, whose, whose thinking can be traced back yet again to predecessor scholastics in the 12th century. So here we see that there's this idea of, of what it would mean for a cleric to function as a preacher. But here again, there's a large difference between the preaching cleric and the, the friar preacher who would come into focus with the advent of the order of preachers. In previous generations, such as so the, the, a cleric, such as the scholastics are describing him, would preach on occasion. Preaching was thought to be the exclusive function of a bishop. Preaching was something that a cleric would do only insofar as he shared in the in power of the bishop's office. In any case, preaching is never conceived as something uh, that would essentially define one's person, would, would give one one's identity. It's rather something that one does on occasion. It's in incidental to one's role. So this brings into focus how different and how novel this notion of a preacher is in the order of preachers. With the advent of the order of preachers, preaching was for the first time no longer conceived as something that one merely did. It became the determinative basis of who one was. Preaching was not simply something that one did on occasion. It was one's defining activity, the work to which one had chiefly dedicated oneself. To quote Simon Tugwell, St. Dominic's companions were not religious of St. Romain, who had happened to be preaching. They were the preachers of St. Romain. Preaching was their essential task. It gave them their identity and their definition. And you can see this here in this quote from Jordan of Saxony's Libellus, written around 1233. How under theorized this notion of a preacher really was. So, before I move on here, I just want to point out something that I think can get easily lost in these discussions. The preacher, as Dominic understood it, and as he sought to um, inculcate this notion in others, was not the instantiation of an abstract collection of ideas that he developed and refined in the quiet of a cloister. Rather, the concept of a preacher was something that had emerged through, through the practice of preaching and living as a poor preacher. The ideas ingredient in the concept of a preacher were, were more or less implicit even in the early days of the order. Dominic brought into being a new type of person, a new persona, a new identity 
but he didn't first conceive of an ideal preacher and then through trial and error seek to embody that ideal. Rather, the embodiment of this new ideal came first. And so what we see in the wake of the advent of the order of preachers in its earliest days uh, are a series of efforts to formulate conceptually this new ideal that had, had already been embodied in the person of Dominic and the earliest friars. So now I wanna talk about some hindrances to the transmission of, of this ideal. <clears throat> All right, the first of these has to do with the rapid expansion of the Dominican order. At the time of Dominic's death in 1221, the order of preachers consisted of roughly 300 friars occupying 20 prior, priories in select cities throughout France, Italy, Germany, and Spain. But by 1256, the order's ranks had expanded to 13,000 members, including 10,000 priests and 3,000 novices, students, and lay brothers. Along with their Dominican counterparts, the friars minor, the friars preachers had established hundreds of priories throughout even beyond Christendom with missionary outposts in far-flung corners of the earth, earth, such as Persia and even parts of the Mongol empire. So my point here is that rapid expansion across territorial, political and cultural boundaries is liable to generate uh, problems in transmission when you are theorizing a, an entirely new identity, a, an entirely new type of person and an entirely new mode of life. Another problem that enhanced the difficulty in transmission across territorial, political, and cultural boundaries was the decentralized government of the Dominican order. Its uniquely decentralized representative form of government made the priory the most important administrative and territorial division of the order. And although sub subject to the jur jurisdiction of its province, each priory was essentially self-governing. This on the one hand permitted the friars to respond creatively and flexibly to the local demands of ministry and to meet the needs of its members. But a secondary effect was a kind of spotty, inconsistent, sometimes confused transmission of ideals. And so you'll see this in the, for example, in the acts of the general chapters or in the acts of the provincial chapters, there are from the very earliest days of the order, constant admonitions, uh, which are unevenly dispersed throughout the order, exhorting the friars to live in accordance with the constitutions. For example, we see very, very early evidence of, of fugitive friars, people leaving the order, people making abuse of the opportunity for travel. There's, there's, the order has from its earliest days begun attracting young men to its ranks who are obviously interest, just as interested in seeing the world as they and in studying as they are in preaching. And so there's a, a kind of, uh, there's a, a kind of difficulty, a number of difficulties that are encountered here with inculcating this no, new notion of what a preacher is. Here's a third set of difficulties. Uh, one, has to do with the foundation of Dominican schools. B 
Beginning in 1220, all Dominican priories were constitutionally obliged to staff a conventual school for the purpose of training novices and educating the brethren. So wherever you had a Dominican convent, you also had a Dominican school whose doors were open to the public. Very early, the order also founded general houses of study in Paris, Bologna, and Oxford. And then in just a few decades, the Dominicans had established scores of provincial schools, intermediate, which are intermediate schools that are meant to prepare students for advanced work. Okay, so you have this proliferation of, of various degrees of, of school that are meant to prepare friars to, to be preachers, but you also have hundreds of grammar schools for young boys that are founded all across Western Europe. So what begins is this tightly knit network of schools founded to serve the mission of the order has by 1256 become this vast, if somewhat unwieldy educational system, uh, some, which sometimes only showed tenuous connections to the original mission of the order. You also have, say in the case of the, the friars in Italy, building campaigns, the friars are busy building churches, piazzas, bridges, roads, so on and so forth, thanks to the donation of wealthy benefactors. And in some contexts, uh, these, these projects were not entirely apropos the, the order's mission. So you have uh, a number of this is another way in which you, you, you see a kind of diffusion of focus, which lends some confusion to what it is to, to be a friar preacher. And last, the last thing I'll mention here, you have, especially in the early days of the order, a, an increasing focus, in, 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 especially in specific regions, on politics, legislation, arbitration, reconciliation. So for example, in the turbulent communes of Northern and Central Italy, the friars preaching became quickly entangled with their efforts to keep the peace amid political rivals. In Parma, Modena, Bologna, and in many cities um, throughout Central and Northern Europe, Dominican revivalists such as John of Vicenza took direct control of the communal governments in, in Vicenza's case, he actually rewrote city laws. He, just, he deposed public officials. And in one instance, at least, he even ordered a public execution. So here you see there are, there are friars and there are preachers, but they're also involving themselves in a whole host of tasks beyond the specific game of preaching. And you also see uh, numerous admonitions in the early general and provincial chapters which are seeking to constrain this kind of activity. <clears throat> Finally, you have the death of first generation friars. So take rapid expansion across territorial boundaries, add to that a, a, a plethora of auxiliary activities, some of which are only tenuously connected to the order's mission. Add to that the fact that the, the earliest friars, Dominic himself, those whom Dominic knew, even luminaries such as Hugh of St. Cher, uh, Roland of Cremona, Reginald of, Orle of Orleans, the, Jordan of Saxony, th these men are all since, long since dead or very elderly and inactive. 
And so the question is, how is it that the, the order of preachers you know, around 1256 is going to pass on this idea of what it means to be a preacher? How are they going to do this? What, is, what does it mean to be a preacher? How are we going to convey this to our, our newest recruits? How are we going to form them in the life of a preacher? <clears throat> so you see in response to uh, a, a growing sense of urgency around these questions, a spate of early Dominican literature some, some works listed here are actually written with the, not with the specific aim of inculcating others with an idea of what a preacher is, but you can, it, but a careful study of them shows that this is an urgent concern on the minds of, uh, of many Dominicans at the time. So for example, if you go and read around in Hugh of St. Cher's Postiles on the entire Bible, it's, it's this it's one of the largest biblical commentaries that's ever been written. It's this massive seven volume work. Uh, it's a commentary on the entire Bible. It's written, <clears throat> it's written um, in, in Paris by, by Hugh of St. Cher and what were essentially, we think some of his, his students there are these constant efforts throughout the postiles to, to hammer into the mind of the reader what it means to be a preacher and to rule out faulty conceptions of, of a preacher. So I'm going to now zoom in on one work in particular where this concern is, is especially evident. And that's Jordan of Saxony's Labellus, which is written around the time of 1233. So you can see here, this is Jordan at the outset of the Labellus. He's, it's, it's the prologue and he's giving an explanation of why he's put his hand to writing this work. He says that many of the brethren have been asking who were the first brethren of our order, what they were like, how they increased in number, and how they were made strong in grace. Jordan goes on to note he wouldn't need to do this if it if the if it were these were not genuine questions. The brethren are generally ignorant about the first brethren of the order. They don't know who they were, they don't know what they were like, they don't know how they were made strong in grace. They, in other words, they're wanting to know how it is, what a, what a preacher is, as it's embodied in the order's first members, and how they can become like those men. How can they, they too can become preachers? So Jordan goes on in this work to give an account not only of the life and work of St. Dominic, but he also he also describes in detail a number of other early friars, including his friend, Brother Henry, who in his letters he calls the jewel among preachers and Reginald of Orleans. And I, I hope you've received it. I, I circulated a document of quotations and I'm just going to, I can't read from all of those, but I'm going to pause here now just to read you some of these quotations specifically about Dominic. And what I'm going to want to be doing is 
reading these quotations and then showing how there's a kind of, a, a kind of pattern that emerges from, from this, these descriptions of Dominic, and if we had time, Henry and Reginald. And that pattern is essentially this, that what a, it means to be a preacher, according to Jordan and the earliest Dominicans, is to be a person uh, who is possessed of a very specific cluster of graces and virtues. So I'll read here quote number one from the document that I handed out. So quote, as noted above, Dominic's practice of sending brethren here and there into various parts of God's church was truly wondrous. He proceeded so confidently and without wavering, even against the advice of some who deemed it unfeasible that it seemed he was sure of the future or that he was being instructed by the revelation of the spirit, end quote. All right, so here, the thing to flag and hold on to, I'm, I, will, I will return to this, is the emphasis on Dominic's confidence. <clears throat> confidence according to the early moral sumus in the Dominican order, I'm thinking here of Paul of Hungary and William Peraldus, is a part of fortitude, a part of courage. And, uh, and Aquinas will go on to agree, although he'll modify their formulations somewhat. But confidence is, is a, over and over again, is a virtue that's attributed to Dominic, not in only in the Labellus, but throughout early Dominican literature. You see this in Hugh of St. Cher's Postiles. You see this in occasional sermons. You see this in Gerard de Frachet's uh, Vitae Fratrum, or the Lives of the Brethren, which is commissioned in 1256 and completed in 1260. On and on and on, we see this emphasis on confidence. J Dominic is so confident. He sends, at the, at the moment where you would at least expect him to, to do this, he sends the brethren out to the far-flung corners of Western Europe to found priories, to begin preaching the gospel. And he does this uh, in, in what seems like defiance of, of human prudence, it's as though he's being led by the Holy Spirit. This is a key aspect of what it means to be a preacher in these early texts. All right, so here's the second quote. Far, far more impressive and splendid than all his miracles, though, was the excep exceptional integrity of his character and the extraordinary divine fervor which carried <clears throat> him along. Let's see if I can find this. Nope. <clears throat> we'll just keep it here. Um, hopefully you're, you've found that document and you're able to read along with me. These proved beyond all doubt that he, Dominic, was a vessel of honor and grace, and grace adorned with every kind of precious stone. His mind was always steady and firm except when he was stirred by a feeling of compassion and mercy. And since a happy heart makes for a cheerful face, the tranquil composure of the inner man was revealed outwardly by the kindliness and cheerfulness of his expression. He never allowed himself to become angry. In every reasonable purpose which his mind conceived in accordance with God's will, he, he maintained such constancy of heart that he hardly ever, if ever, consented to change any plan which he had formulated with due deliberation. 
And though, as has been said, his face was always radiant with a cheerfulness which revealed the good conscience he bore within him, the light of his face never fell to the ground. Now here in this passage, without naming these virtues explicitly in some instances, Jordan is adverting to a collection of virtues that are described routinely in these early moral sume. You see in the, in the second line, a mention of divine fervor, which is conceived as an effect of charity. And then there are a whole, uh, a sequence of, of other virtues that are, are mentioned. What I, the ones I want to draw your attention to are again, parts of fortitude. You see a reference to firmitas. You see then uh, a little bit further down a, a reference to constantia. Like, like confidence or fiducia, firmitas, constantia, these are secondary parts of the virtue of fortitude. I'll say something more particular when we come to Thomas about what each of these specific virtues do. There are other virtues here that are mentioned. You see a reference in, when, in Dominic's absence of anger to his gentleness. You see a reference to his mercy, but the light, but what figures very prominently here are, are these principal part, or secondary parts of fortitude, firmitas, Constantia. And then the last line again, uh, the his in Dominic's absence of sorrow, the light of his face never falling to the ground, there's an oblique reference to patience, which is also a secondary part of fortitude. So here, here's one last quotation. Whenever Dominic, wh wherever Dominic went, whether he was on the road with his companions or in some house, whether with his, with his host and the rest of the household or among magnates and rulers and prelates, he always overflowed with words of encouragement. He abounded with exempla by, with which he turned the souls of his listeners to the love of Christ and to contempt for the world. Everywhere in word and in deed, he showed himself to be a man of the gospel. Now, if we had more time and I could keep reading to you these passages from the handout, you'd see that the descriptions of Henry and then of Reginald and others essentially echo the descriptions we've just seen of Dominic. And what I want to highlight in all of these descriptions is a very particular cluster of graces and virtues. When, I, when I'm using this word graces here, I'm referring to what is what are later translated sometimes as charisms. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit, not in the um, that I, Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 11 as later theorized by Gregory the Great and then by Aquinas and many others besides, but these are charisms. These are specific gifts that, such as those described in 1 Corinthians 12, Rome, and, and also in the book of Romans by the apostle Paul. These are gifts that are given for the upbuilding of the church. And throughout the Labellus and in many, many other early Dominican works, 
there's a consistent emphasis on a certain collection of graces that's characteristic of a preacher. Uh, the first of these is prophecy. The second is a kind of eloquence or grace in words. And the third is a kind of encouragement. Let me just say a, a little bit about, uh, about each of these and with special emphasis on the second and the third. So in, in the early days of the Dominican order, the gift of prophecy it is conflated or I should say blended, seen as on, along a continuum with a phrase that is enshrined in the constitutions of 1220, that is the grace of preaching. Preaching, the gift of preaching is conceived as a kind of prophetic gift, a gift uh, for which by which one receives from God a kind of utterance that one then conveys to others for the, for the purpose of unbelievers and believers as well. Eloquence, which is related to this first gift, is not simply a, a kind of rhetorical know-how or a, a kind of artfulness and technique. It refers rather to a kind of, a, a kind of zeal, a kind of fervor, which uh, and you can see from the quotations, is often described as setting the hearts of one's listeners on fire. It, there's a kind of je ne sais quoi about this, a kind of, a, a kind of mystery. In any case, it's, it's routinely insisted that without such grace, one should not preach. And I will... Um, and, and I'll say something more about this in a second. Secondly is the gift of encouragement. And you can go back and see in this, in this quotation from the Labellus about, about Dominic. Dominic, he says Jordan, no matter where he was, always overflowed with words of encouragement, words of consolation, words of uplift. He, he, he never lacked a story, an anecdote, a scripture, a joke, um, a, a gentle aside, a kind word that would that was um, able to lift someone up out of their their circumstances or exhort them um, in pursuit of of the Lord, and this is understood as a kind of gift. It's not just a, a kind of um, natural disposition, although this gift can certainly build on such natural disposition. It's understood as a gift of the Holy Spirit, as a kind of grace. <clears throat> then you have, in all these descriptions, a, a standard collection of virtues, one of which is, of course, charity, the virtue without which these other virtues cannot exist. And then, as I say, you have these principal or secondary parts of fortitude that are attached to fortitude as a principal part, according to Paul of Hungary, according to William Peraldus, Aquinas, and many others. These are constancy, patience, and confidence. Constancy, according to these early Dominican Sume, are, is the virtue by which you remain steady in your purpose despite difficulty and danger. Patience is the virtue by which you endure sorrow. Confidence is the virtue by which you summon a kind of hope, a kind of, 
a strength of hope, a robustness of hope for completing the thing that one has begun. So the question is, before we move on now to Aquinas, why these virtues? I've just, I've just shown you in, in just one instance, uh, a kind of paradigmatic instance, the, a, a certain stress on these virtues. And now I, what I wanna do is go on to show you why it is that these virtues are so frequently emphasized in early Dominican literature. So first is charity. And here, I'm. if you have the handout that I emailed um, <clears throat> to Father Keenan, you'll, you'll see these quotations. So why charity? You can see here, I, I've included a se sequence of quotations by Hugh of St. Cher, Peter of Rhymes, and then later by Aquinas. According to Hugh, he who does not burn does not set on fire. And again, Peter of Rhymes in a sermon on the evangelists written, we think sometime prior to 1245, anyone who's not burning will not be able to set anyone else on fire. And then you see the echo of, of these statements in Thomas's commentary on Isaiah. He says, one is moved to preach by the sting of zeal. And then he quotes Jeremiah 20. And there came into my heart the word of the Lord as a burning fire. Now, Thomas goes on there in, um, in Isaiah, not in the commentary on Isaiah, but in the commentary on Jeremiah, which we'll look at in a bit, to say that this, this fire that's burning in the bones of the prophet or burning in the bones of the preacher is charity. It's the love of God. It's a kind of friendship with God that moves the preacher to... Um, to declare the goodness of God, to lift up the brokenhearted. And without this love, without this charity, one, one simply can't be moved to preach. Moreover, it's thought um, one's preaching will be inefficacious, it will be powerless, unless, unless one is moved, as Hugh and Peter and others say, by this, this fire in the bones, this love of God. So you need charity just to get preaching off the ground. You need love for God on the one hand, and then secondary to that, as inspired by love for God, you need love for one's neighbors. And that's the love that moves the preacher to declare the truth about God to them. And without it, there's no preaching. And whatever preaching obtains is powerless. Constancy, why do you need this? Well, so Hugh of St. Cher, gives one reason here in the apostilles, this, this being a apostille on Jeremiah. He says, according to the literal sense, the Lord ordered Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the house of the Lord so that those who refused to listen to the word of the Lord would at least bear, hear Jeremiah preaching in the gate while they entered through the gate. The Lord himself, that's Jesus, did this often for we read that he preached in synagogues on the Sabbath when the people assembled. And this teaches us to do the same thing at certain times and places. The reason that the preacher needs constancy in order to sustain his life as a preacher is that very many of one's listeners are going to be essentially uninterested in what the preacher has to say. And here you can see this, this picture I found on the Princeton Index of Medieval Art. 
these are a, a group of young men. I believe this is from the mid 13th century, young men and young women who are, who are playing dice. They don't, they don't wanna hear what the preacher has to say. Um, and he will go on and many others will go on to emphasize, not only do, the, the, do one's listeners frequently not wanna hear what one has to say, they hate the things that the preacher has to say. And so one needs constancy to endure their casual dismissals and um, their vituperations. Okay, patience. Why do you need patience? Well, here's a quote from William Peraldus in a sermon on, on the third Sunday in Advent. He says, and notice that going among people is not any less dangerous than going among wolves. A philosopher was asked what might be the greatest enemy to man, and he answered, another man. When one goes among people, one sees and is seen, and one kills and is killed. One hurts and is hurt. To be and be seen, to hear and be heard is dangerous. So there are sorrows in the world and dangers and difficulties in the world that say a monk would not have encountered, but a preacher, some a man who has um, who who lives yes a cloistered life is also flung by the love of God from the cloister into the streets where he encounters hurt and sorrow, and you need patience, the virtue by which you endure such sorrow in order to sustain a life of preaching, and not only that. Look, here's a quotation from Jordan of Saxony in his 44th letter. This is a letter to uh, his beloved friend, Diana, who is a Dominican sister. And he's re referring here to the death of his good friend, Henry. Wherefore I've wept, he says, and still sometimes I now weep and I weep for my most faithful companion, my sweetest friend. I weep for the brother who loved me so much. I weep for my dearest son, Henry, the prior of Cologne. To become a, a preacher was to abandon the world, was to, uh, or I should say, to abandon all worldly occupations. It's to take a vow of poverty. It's to take a vow of chastity. It's to dedicate one's life entirely to the task of preaching. But it's, but it's not to abandon one's humanity and the love that comes, that, that comes packaged with it. These are real people. They have friends, friends who are dying, friends who are being, say, in the case of Peter of Verona, killed. There, and there you see a picture of Peter. Peter's being assassinated by a, a heretic, and there's Dominic weeping over him. There's, there's sorrow in the life of a preacher. And this is just true in the case of, of pastoral work more generally, if you're going to involve yourself in people's lives, you're going to be swimming in a sea of sorrow and without patience, your preaching won't last long. Finally, we have the virtue of confidence. And again, here we have a letter from Jordan of Saxony demonstrating, uh, I'm, I'm putting this before you to demonstrate why it is that confidence is stressed, not just in the case of Dominic and Henry, but, in, but throughout these early Dominican works. He says, for I had spent a long, he's talking to Diana again, for I had spent a long time preaching to the scholars at Padua 
with little or no fruit as far as I could see. Wherefore I grew weary and was thinking of leaving. And then suddenly the Lord was pleased to pierce the hearts of many, to pour into them the torrent of his grace and to add to my voice, his voice of power. Okay, end quote. So you see here, Jordan in a very vulnerable moment admitting the essential powerlessness of a preacher. You can stand before people, you can talk all day, you can, you can speak sweetly, you can speak truly. And yet, unless the Lord adds to the preacher's voice, what Jordan here calls the voice of power, or Thomas later in the scriptum on the sentences calls the, the interior voice of the spirit. Unless this happens, the preacher's words are uh, essentially inefficacious. And this is often the case in preaching. One goes on preaching and uh, without seeing the fruit of one's preaching, often for a long time, one goes from city to city, uh, from day to day, week to week, month to month. And it's not clear whether or how what one is saying is mattering to anyone at all. And so you need confidence, confidence to, to complete the task that you've been given, the task of preaching. And that confidence, as we'll see here now in the case of, uh, of Aquinas's commentaries on Isaiah and Jeremiah, is a very particular kind of confidence that's rooted in confidence in God. Okay. So what I've just tried to do is give a general description of some of the, the, this notion of a preacher as organized around a cluster of graces and virtues. And now what I wanna show is that when we turn to Aquinas's early commentaries on Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see a very clear echo of that same general picture. And, but we can also already see that Thomas is trying to tighten it up some, even in a kind of cursory, uh, even in a kind of cursory rapid commentary, such as, such as those that he writes on Jeremiah and Isaiah. So I'm going to now read a rather long passage from the commentary on Isaiah. And, I, and I'm going to just focus my attention here in order to, to wrap things up. But I'm going, I wanna read this, then I, I wanna exposit it a bit, and um, then we'll have time for some discussion and questions. Hopefully you have this handout, and so you're not just hearing me read, but you can, you can read along as well. So this is a passage here, it's quotation 10 on the handout that I gave. It's, a re, it's, a, it's an exposition of a passage from Isaiah, where Isaiah begins by saying, the Lord has given me a learned tongue to uphold the weary. All right, now as an aside, this passage has already gained a, a kind of special place in the hearts of early Dominicans in the wake of Jordan's libellus. Um, there's a very important passage, which I've, I've, I've had to just leave aside, where this, it's by reading this passage, which Jordan quotes in full, that, that <clears throat> Henry, his friend, is persuaded to join the order of preachers. And what, if you go and read this, it's, it's really amazing. He, he reads this passage in full 
and they, it's like, just as Augustine stumbles upon that passage from Romans in, in, in the Confessions, by Jordan's account, Henry stumbles upon this passage from Isaiah 50, and Jordan is there to exposit it for him, and, he said, and his, his, his essential point is this. This is a passage about what it means to be a preacher, and it's also a description of you, Henry, and God is calling you to join the order. So there's already a kind of storied background here when Thomas is expositing this text. And we can expect that Thomas's first listeners, these are, this commentary is a classroom, a sequence of classroom lectures. We can expect that they would have been familiar with, with this story of, of Jordan and Henry, because Thomas is of course teaching at St. Jacques in Paris. He's teaching as a part of the University of Paris, but we know that, uh, but this just means that the convent school at St. Jacques had been incorporated into the university. So he's, we, we're thinking that he's speaking initially to a, uh, a primarily Dominican audience. So he says, the Lord has given me, I'm quoting, here he, that's Isaiah, presents himself as an example and first, with respect to the grace of the benefit he received. So see that word grace there. As regards both eloquence. So Isaiah says, I have a learned tongue that I should know how to uphold. How? With what? With encouragements. To confirm, to uphold, to strengthen those who are staggering. And the Lord has also given Isaiah wisdom. He wakens my ear to listen, he says, in the morning from the beginning of my preaching. And then he quotes Psalm 62. I will meditate on you in the morning. And the Lord has opened my ear to understand. And then he quotes Psalm 84. I will hear what the Lord God will speak in me. And there you see this, this reference to a kind of prophetic inspiration without flinching or, or hedging or hesitation. Thomas is echoing this early Dominican assumption that what the preacher has to say is at least in part inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second, he presents himself as an example of obedience, setting out his perfect obedience. And I do not resist, but I receive and accept this inspiration. I've not gone back from my good intention. And he quotes Isaiah 45, 9, woe to him that gainsays his maker. He also sets out, look, the constancy of his obedience, that he did not abandon his obedience for any danger. I've given my body, that is, I exposed myself that I should suffer such things. Well, perhaps he literally did suffer these things. And he quotes Jeremiah, I've given my dear soul into the hands of my enemies. Third, he, Isaiah, Thomas is saying, presents himself as an example of having confidence in God. First, setting down a ready defense. The Lord God is my helper. And then the security of, of his confidence. He set my face so that I've, I'm moved neither by fear nor shame. I've made the face, thy face like an adamant and like a flint. Third, he assigns the reason for his security, just from the power of the helper. He that justifies me is near. So what we're seeing in this passage, I'm, I, I want to argue, is a very clear 
instantiation of an earlier pattern that's already been circulating in these earlier Dominican works, one of which, one example of which we've, we've just looked at. Thomas begins by, he, he, Thomas begins by saying, Isaiah, the prophet, presents himself as an example. He puts himself forth. An example, as Thomas says in one of his quad libets that he writes around this time, is something according to which something else is made to imitate. It's, it's a pattern. It's a thing that you are meant to. So in the case of a preacher, you're meant to make yourself in the light of Isaiah. He's putting himself forth as an example for imitation calling the reader, in this case, the Dominican reader, to embody the graces and the virtues that is exhibited in Isaiah's preaching. And then he goes on to mention eloquence and comfort. So what does it mean to be a preacher? It's, it's to overflow with as Dominic did with a kind of uh, a, a sweet set of exempla with, uh, with words of encouragement. It's to, um, it's to be moved by the Holy Spirit. It's to hear what, what the Holy Spirit says, what Holy Spirit whispers in one's ear in the morning. And then it's to go on. And as he says here in the second paragraph, it's to actually repeat what one has heard. And that's this reference to obedience. So Isaiah first presents himself as, as an example. What he's exemplary first and foremost with respect to the graces he's received. Those are graces of, of, of inspiration, of eloquence, of encouragement. Second, he presents himself as an example with respect to obedience and specifically with the constancy of his obedience. The Lord speaks to Isaiah. The Lord speaks to Dominic. The Lord speaks to the preacher. And the preacher does the crazy thing of actually saying what it is that he hears, so to speak. He's, he, he does not turn back. He, he is constant in his, in his vocation. He preaches so and Thomas will pick up on this later in the commentary and talk about um, the insistence on, we'll talk about the importance of constancy in the mode of preaching. One, one must um, stay true to one's calling. One must persist in the purpose that, uh, that one has put one's hand to in preaching. Third, he presents himself here as an example of confidence and security. And you can see, so what Thomas has done as he's expanded on this er earlier list that I showed you back here, okay? And he's elaborated it somewhat. He's drawn it out and filled it out with some additional parts of fortitude, namely, in, namely confidence. And then he's, and he's added to this obedience, which he conceives as a part of justice. So security, according to Thomas, according to Paul of Hungary, according to these early Sumas, um, Alan of Lille, from whom they're borrowing, and many others besides, security is essentially, it's akin to fortitude, but it pertains not to dangers of death, 
but to any danger, any, any fearful object whatsoever. And Thomas is saying here, Isaiah presents himself as an exemplary preacher. He presents himself as such. Um, and then Thomas in turn presents um, Isaiah's self-presentation to the reader uh, as if to say, um, you too um, should, um, should get security. You too need confidence. You too need constancy. Okay. So these, um, these are the virtues and, and gifts that I'm suggesting are especially prominent in the, these early Dominican texts. Now I just want to conclude with a little puzzle here. <clears throat> and it's a puzzle that I think forces us to go back and, and think again about some fundamental relations in Thomas's moral theory, and specifically between how he understands the contemplative life and the active life and certain virtues, which are characteristic of the active life. So I'm just going to read this passage here from the commentary on Jeremiah and then say a few bits about it before we open up to questions and discussion. He says, and then he, that's Jeremiah, demonstrates true confidence. But let him who glories in this, <clears throat> that he, let him who glories, glory in this, that he knows me. This is, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he knows me through knowledge in the intellect and that he's familiar with me. And here, this, this is Aquinas' gloss, through the experience of sweetness in the affection. Now, many of my Dominican friends and, and fellow Thomas fall out of their chairs when they see this word here, um, and I've, I've included the Latin, experientia. It's the experience of sweetness in the affection. And what Thomas is saying here, and I've included this in the handout, you can go on to, to get a, a bit of wider context, is that true confidence, such as the preacher is meant to embody, is grounded neither in one's own wisdom, nor in one's store of exterior goods, nor in one's own human strength, but in one thing alone. It's to be grounded in the knowledge of God and not just the knowledge of God, the experience of God, the sweetness of God's presence. And what this suggests, I think, is something very interesting about how we typically think about the relationship between the contemplative life on the one hand and the active life on the other and Aquinas, even according to some of his own formulations, the, con the contemplative life is something subsequent to the active life, uh, which, which bears very little on the active life in the sense that it, it, it's a kind of possibility enabled by the cultivation of virtue, but has little to do with its generation. 
But here we see Aquinas suggesting something very different, namely that there's this virtue called confidence, which is, which by the way, he'll later in the Summa uh, regard as a condition of magnanimity. He's saying, here's a virtue, a kind of confidence, true confidence that uh, is not, uh, that is in fact, in some way tethered to a kind of experience, a kind of knowing, and a kind of sweetness that is subsequent to that knowing, which if we had more time, we could go on to show Thomas sees as being an integral part of the contemplative life and its various acts. So I know that's a lot. I know I've, I've flown through a lot of material, but I just wanted to sort of put this on the table and, and now um, and have a discussion with you about it. So thank you.